Yes, Buck fans, this is the podcast that takes you back through all the best games, moments, and players in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is the BuckPower.com podcast. Now, here's the unofficial team historian and your host from BuckPower.com, it's Paul Stewart. One of the good things to do during an off-season is to compile a list of the best efforts. And to get Buck fans in the mood for the upcoming 2022 campaign, here's one looking at the best wide receivers in Tampa Bay franchise history. Now, the Bucks are loaded at wide receiver now. Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, free agent arrival Russell Gage, Breshard Perriman, Tyler Johnson, even Scotty Miller. All of those would start on a lot of other NFL teams. But who are the best Buccaneer receivers ever? And where did the current crop rank amongst the names from the past? Welcome to the BuckPower.com podcast. Going deep, he's got a man open. Touchdown, Kevin House. Johnson to the outside, caught by McCardell. Sims fires to the end zone, touchdown, Joey Galloway. Quick throw, Johnson, touchdown. Brady going deep down the right side, line for Evans, he makes the catch, he's in for the score. Joining me to discuss the history of the best Buccaneer receivers is someone who's seen nearly all of them, either from the stands and nearly two decades on the sideline, the one and only TJ Reeves. It is great to be with you, Paul Stewart, as part of the Buck Power podcast series. I am ready to roll my sleeves up and talk top wide receivers. One thing you cannot do in these countdowns is simply go on stats. 70 receptions now would equate to 40 in the 1980s. Therefore, you have to put into context when a particular player was in Buccaneer colours. Perhaps also who's trying to throw the ball to them too. So, from 10 to 1, these are the choices from BuckPower.com. They encompass every season of Tampa Bay football and should bring back good memories for fans of all ages. He's going to throw it again, floats it out, corner of the end zone, touchdown! Morris Owens pulls it down in a corner of the end zone. First down play for Gary Huff. He's going on the deep post pattern, and it's the speedster, he's got it, Morris Owens, Owens may score, he is! Morris Owens was the first receiving threat the Buccaneers had. He did not start the expansion season with Tampa Bay, but was actually claimed on waivers in late September for Miami, having been the Dolphins' fifth-round pick in 1975. Within two weeks, he was in the starting lineup, and he went on to lead the 76 Bucks in receptions with 30, which was quite a lot in those days, and especially for the expansion Buccaneers. He also had six of the Bucks' nine receiving touchdowns that season, three of them coming in one game against Miami to set a franchise record that would last a decade. He also had the first receiving touchdown in team history in a game against fellow expansionist Seattle. Running back Lewis Clarter plunged into the line from a yard out, was stopped cold and then threw the ball two-handed to Owens who was standing on the right of the formation. He caught it, stepped into the end zone uncontested for the first of what is now 923 Buccaneer receiving touchdowns. Morris Owens went on to lead the receiving in both 77 and 78 as well. The amazing stat from 77 is he had three receiving touchdowns, the entire team total for the year. Two of them came in the final two weeks as the Bucks broke their 26-game losing streak, the one against the St. Louis Cardinals being a 66-yard bomb from Gary Huff in front of a very young Nick Puglisi. 
By 1979, Owens was still starting, but down the pecking order behind Isaac Hagins and tight end Jimmy Giles in terms of targets, but he's still one of those players who was there from the winless year to the first playoff year. He was released after that season and he never played in the NFL again. Now his final numbers might not seem like much of a career these days, but Maurice Owens was the only receiving threat the Buccaneers had in the early days, and anyone who lived through those first seasons will know of his importance. His place in that top 10 is well deserved. Freeman from the shotgun. Squeezes it to the end zone. It's tipped up. Cut. Touchdown. And welcome to the NFL, Mike Williams. Freeman down the middle of the field for Mike Williams. And that's a touchdown Tampa Bay. Former Bucks general manager Mark Dominic claimed he was going to double up in the 2010 draft by taking a pair of defensive tackles, Gerald McCoy and Brian Price, followed by a pair of wide receivers in Aurelius Ben and Mike Williams. He claimed his strategy could mean a 50% success rate that would boost both positions, and he was right. McCoy went on to be a true star up front, and Mike Williams had three superb seasons, perhaps unexpected for only a fourth-round pick. Williams' rookie season saw him fall just short of a 1,000 yards, but he had 11 touchdowns to set a then-franchise record for receivers. Only Mike Evans has ever exceeded this total. A solid season followed in 2011, followed by a 2012 campaign when he came just four yards short of a 1,000, but found the end zone another nine times. His numbers dropped off in 2013 because of alleged off-field issues and he wound up being traded to Buffalo in 2014 for only a sixth-round pick. He had just eight receptions for the Bills and was soon persona non grata in Buffalo as well and he was released at the end of that season, never playing in the NFL again. His 25-buck touchdowns remains fifth amongst franchise receivers and he was done in little more than three seasons. His Tampa Bay career will always be regarded of what might have been, but he was pretty amazing for his first three years, especially for a fourth round pick. Carter makes the pick. Carter, touchdown. Gerald Carter. Jack Thompson to Gerald Carter. What a play. The bird. Looking quickly. Slant pattern. Touchdown. Gerald Carter walks into the end zone. A perfect throw by the bird. It took the Bucks nine seasons to even have an offence ranked in the top ten in the NFL, and it came in 1984 thanks to one of the best sets of skill positions in franchise history. James Wilder in the backfield, Steve DeBerg throwing the passes to tight end Jimmy Giles and wide receiver Kevin House. And then there was the unheralded member of that unit, Gerald Carter. His progress up the Buccaneer depth chart had been a slow one, having been a ninth round pick in 1980, and he only had one catch and seven special teams tackles in his first two seasons. He began to see more playing time in 1982, supplanting Gordon Jones, and he became a regular starter in 83, thereby starting his long double act with Kevin House. He had at least 40 receptions in each of the next four seasons, and even his 38 total in 87 was in a season shortened by the players' strike. He peaked in 1984 with 60 receptions for 816 yards and five scores. He suffered a hamstring injury in 1988 and was cut in training camp, thereby ending his NFL career. Gerald Carter was always one of the quieter members of the team, rarely being quoted in the media, but fellow players have always spoken so highly of him and his role on the team. 
he well deserves his place in our top 10, even though he was a career number two receiver. Well, obviously, I was not covering the team for Morris Owens or Gerald Carter in a media capacity. I remember as a fan watching both of them, uh, in particular, Gerald Carter on so many bad teams, obviously. I did get the chance up close to cover Mike Williams, who, look, he, he was distinguished at times. He was in trouble a bunch. I happen to like him personally, Paul, because I did radio shows with him, a couple of years of radio shows uh, with him. Mike would make spectacular plays, but then he would have some games where it where he would almost disappear. So it's interesting. He he does make the top 10. This is the first time that we're going to joke about this. If you did anything for a couple of years of Buccaneer football, you're probably in the top 15, if not in the top 10. Mike Williams definitely deserves to be there. A quick story. One of the funniest Buccaneer radio stories that we can now tell here as part of the BuckPower.com podcast series. I'm doing a radio show with Mike Williams, who had been in trouble a couple of times with the law and with the league beforehand. We're live on the air, and he is running late. He's running late. I'm. This is a one-hour show where he's supposed to be sitting in the Buccaneer media studio with me. He's not with me. He's not beside me. He's now calling in on the phone. So the first part of the show, the first few moments, he's on the phone. And then suddenly I ask Mike a question and he's not on the phone anymore. Did we lose the connection? What happened to Mike? Where is he? We're calling off the air. We get voicemail, straight to voicemail, straight to where is Mike? Why is Mike not on the phone? It turns over. It turns out Tampa police had pulled Mike over for speeding and he had to get off the phone to deal with the police officer put the radio show on hold. What a story that made as he came back on the air and said, listen, I'm good. I've not been in an accident, but I had the cops talking to me again. And this was live on the radio. So Mike Williams makes my top 10 just for that interview, Paul. I always remember back at some one of the, uh, when they came to London, I was talking with Mike at the uh, training facility and he was asking me about what the speed limits were on British roads. Maybe that was the reason. And now you know he was concerned about the, the, the Bobbies, the UK cops as well. Seven. And Winston going to the end zone and it's caught. Signal, touchdown, Chris Godwin. Brady going end zone, it is caught for the touchdown by Godwin. He dropped here, Brady down the middle, it's caught for the touchdown, Godwin. The first question you will ask is how can the wide receiver with the second most catches in Buck history only be ranked seventh in this countdown? Well, this is where you have to consider the era that people have played in. Chris Godwin has had an amazing career so far in Tampa, especially when you realise he was a third-round pick out of Penn State, a college not exactly known as a pipeline of great pro speedsters. After an average rookie season, he has emerged as an amazing counterfoil to Mike Evans, and he would have set a franchise record for receptions in 2021 before he got hurt in the 14th game of the season and missed the rest of the year. And therein is the reason for ranking Chris Goblin at number 7. He's always been number 2 to Mike Evans, whereas all the other players ahead of him are out-and-out number 1 targets, and most of them played in different eras with different numbers of receptions. The NFL in the last few years has become past 1st, 2nd, 3rd and often 4th, and with Tom Brady behind centre, then receiving targets are just going through the roof. Chris Godwin is a pro bowler, a Super Bowl winner and has 29 touchdowns, just two back on Kevin House who does rank ahead of him in this countdown. 
He will surely end his Buccaneer career a lot higher than his current 7th position, but it is justified for now. Did he get it? Touchdown, Vincent Jackson! With seven seconds to go! Winston, end zone, catch, yes, no, yes! Touchdown, Vincent Jackson for the Bucs! Any mention of Vincent Jackson is going to be tinged with sadness now after he passed away in February 2021. He did so much off the field, particularly in his support for the military, but his on-field performances for the Buccaneers were quite remarkable, especially when you consider some of the quarterbacks he had throwing to him during his five Tampa Bay seasons. Jackson was the prize signing of the 2012 free agency period, inking a 55 million deal paid over five years, making it one of the few such contracts that really paid off for the team. He had three straight 1,000-yard seasons on arriving in Tampa, and his 1384 total in 2012 remains the third most in franchise history. He also still holds the franchise record for a single game, 216 yards against New Orleans in 2012, including a non-scoring 95-yard play, one record that's going to be pretty difficult to dislodge. His numbers did tail off a little in 2015 and 2016 due to injuries, and he had started every game he'd played for the Bucks until then. He retired after 2016, an 11-year NFL career that began as a second-round pick of the San Diego Chargers in 2005. Vincent Jackson was a truly great receiver and a truly great man, taken all too early from us. Sims fires to the end zone, touchdown, Joey Galloway. Greasy hangs in and fires Galloway's second of the day. Here is Rattay, and here is Joey Galloway. Joey Galloway with Daniel Manning on his back. Touchdown, Tampa Bay. For three seasons, Joey Galloway was the Buccaneer passing offence, coming after a few years around the NFL when everyone thought he was washed up and completely through. He was originally the 8th overall pick of the 1995 draft by Seattle and had three 1,000-yard seasons before injury issues took its toll, and his four subsequent seasons in Dallas were less than stellar. So when the Cowboys offered a trade of Galloway for the malcontent and unwelcome Keyshawn Johnson, most Buck fans thought, well, it's better than nothing. After a limited 2004 campaign, he had a monster 2005 season, 83 receptions for 1,287 yards and 10 touchdowns at the age of 34, and he posted two more 1,000-yard seasons to follow. He somehow never made a Pro Bowl, but was badly overlooked after his 2005 Buccaneers season. By the age of 37, his performance declined. He was released after 2008 and just saw limited time in New England and Washington before hanging up his spikes to begin a career in television. Joey Galloway was also involved in a very unique Buccaneer play in 1996. Now, John Lynch holds the record for the highest average per carry for the Buccaneers, as he had a 40-yard run on his only carry, a fake punt against Seattle. And it was Joey Galloway who made the tackle and saved the touchdown. But when it comes to true deep threat receivers, Joey Galloway is pretty unsurpassed in Buccaneer annals. All right, wait a minute. Am I am I hearing this and seeing this correctly that Chris Godwin is number seven on the list, is not higher on this list? I understand he's coming off injury at the time we're releasing this podcast for the upcoming season, but you look at the body of work 
for the first few years that he's been here, he has got to be higher than number seven, Paul Stewart, in particular when he's willing to go over the middle and take the hits that he takes. It's not the same NFL anymore in the 2020s that it certainly was in the 1980s or 90s with it's, it's almost free reign for a safety or a linebacker to lay you out. And actually, that's how Godwin got hurt. He got low-bridged on a hit over the middle in the game with the Saints. But in any event, this guy will go over the middle, make big catches, make spectacular toe-tapping catches uh, on the sideline on a big third down, and has the ability to go do some things after the catch and score touchdowns. He has got to be higher than number seven on that list. I know that at the moment, he may not have as much overall receptions and yardage, but we got we got to be better than that. And Vincent Jackson, the late Vincent Jackson, one of my faves, I got to do radio shows with him. Uh, again, he was one of the ones trying to change the culture coming over in free agency uh, from the Chargers to the Buccaneers uh, and, and was a guy that, again, could make spectacular plays, plays on third down, and then with respect to Galloway, I always remember the, the John Gruden line, if he's even, he's leaving. In other words, if he is side-by-side side with you, he is going to run by you. On your list, I don't know that there's a, there's a more explosive zero to 60 miles per hour receiver than Joey Galloway. Looking for Johnson in the end zone. Touchdown. His second of the game. Quick throw, Johnson. Touchdown, Tampa Bay. It was a drive that featured a lot of Brad Johnson to Keyshawn Johnson. Now, believe me, this list does not take into account off-field antics or personalities. Otherwise, Keyshawn would not have made this list. There is no bigger asshole in Buccaneer history than number 19. And I personally witnessed one of his blow-ups with staff members. But do the Bucks win the Super Bowl without Keyshawn Johnson? No, they don't. They don't even get there without him. Now, he arrived in Tampa in 2000 in return for two first-round picks, and he quickly became the main offensive weapon. But with Sean King and Brad Johnson throwing the passes where the deep ball was not past the equation, a reliable inside receiver who could catch the slant and make the big play where necessary was essential. And that was Keyshawn Johnson. His 106-catch season in 2001 remains the franchise record, and he had two 1,000-yard seasons, including the Super Bowl year. His catch in the NFC Championship game in Philadelphia was huge and as big as any other performance on that day. Now, I don't think the world was really ready for him to score in the Super Bowl, as his ego would have destroyed the fledgling social media world before it truly began. His demise in Tampa was not surprising midway through the 2003 season and his constant spats with coach John Gruden saw him suspended from the team and barred from the complex. He was eventually traded for Jerry Galloway but he did have the last laugh on the Bucks when he scored for Carolina in a 2006 game at Raymond James Stadium. But love him or loathe him, and most people loathe him, Keyshawn Johnson's role on the field for the Buccaneers was massive, and hence he does earn his place so high in this countdown. Well, interesting premise here about Keyshawn coming to the Buccaneers and do they win a Super Bowl without him? I think that's up for debate. You had other receivers like Keenan McCardell and Joe Juravicious that could contribute along with the tight ends. Certainly Keyshawn was the guy to draw the double teams, and he's a guy that could get you. Here we go back to third down receptions and big plays. Uh, but for being such a divisive figure 
uh, as he was the entire time he was here, feuding with Warren Sapp behind the scenes, eventually feuding with John Gruden, which which uh, led to his exit, led to his dismissal in a season where they basically said, uh, to quote Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, don't come around here no more. Don't, don't be here at the facility. Don't even be around the team. Uh, we don't want you here anymore, Keyshawn. Uh, it even developed the private nickname, Mishawn. It was all about Mishawn at that point. Look, the stats are good uh, for Keyshawn to be in your top 10, if not your top five, but I don't know all around if, if number 19 needs to be there in the top five or not. It's up for debate. It's a good debate. So wide receiver stats for you. 105 different wide receivers have had catches for the Buccaneers over their 46 seasons, and 22 of them over 100 catches. The very first pass to a wide receiver was a 17-yarder from Steve Spurrier to John McKay Jr., yes, the coach's son, in the first game against the Houston Oilers. There have been some pretty good nicknames for Buck receivers. Bernard Speedy Reedy, Larry Six-or-Nothing Mucker, Carl, the Truth Williams, and Horace, High C. Copeland, who always celebrates his touchdowns with a backward flip somersault. Williams will throw. Going for six. Touchdown! Kevin House, his first professional touchdown. He's going to keep the ball. Oh, he got him. Top for Kevin House, and Kevin House is off to the races. One of the most iconic plays in franchise history is the 1981 season finale in Detroit when Doug Williams unleashed one of his long bombs down the right sideline and there was Kevin House racing underneath it and taking it 84 yards to the end zone and the Bucks to their second division title. Kevin was a second round pick out of Southern Illinois in 1980 and was enough of an all-round sportsman to have been also drafted by baseball St. Louis Cardinals. He caught the first of his 31 Buccaneer touchdowns in the 1980 game against the Steelers, the Super Bowl that never was, and he added four more that year as a rookie. 1981 was his coming out party, and he recorded the first 1,000-yard season in franchise history on just 56 receptions, a staggering 21-yard average per catch with nine scores. The arrival of his sparring partner Gerald Carter into the Tampa offence brought more success and he added another 1,000-yard season in 1984, exceeding the mark late in the season finale against the Jets. His Buccaneer career came to a sad end in 86 when Lehman Bennett and the front office decided to dump both him and Jimmy Giles in trades and he finished his career playing with the Rams. His final cut total of 286 catches and an amazing 17.2 yard average led the Bucks at the time of his retirement and no feature on the early years of the franchise can be complete without including Kevin House. I remember talking to you having said I have just played golf with Kevin House and I was in awe because he was one of my first heroes as the Buccaneers. I... What do you remember of Kevin? So what I remember is I got here with my family in the early 1980s and Kevin House was one of the few reasons to watch between he, I mean, Doug Williams was gone at this point to the USFL between he and James Wilder and Leroy Selman. That was about it. And, and Kevin was really, I think it's fair to say the first and probably best deep threat this team, this franchise has had uh, some remarkable catches in his career of course, you win the division in the Silver Dome, the clip on buckpower.com with the bomb to who else? Kevin House getting deep on the Detroit Lions to help win that game 
uh, in a game in which it could have gone either way. And his his 70 plus yard touchdown is a great one. I think I think it's fair to say while his golf game may not have been as good as Paul Stewart's, the best deep threat in Buccaneer history, definitely deserving of a top five ranking for all time receivers. Going deep, Carrier has the first down, breaks the tackle, he's gone. Chesterverde across the middle, he's got Carrier, touchdown! Chandler's going to throw it deep downfield, Carrier's got it, quick race 20, 15-10, no one will catch him, touchdown! The 1987 draft brought an entirely new passing offence to the Bucks, with Vinny Testaverde being joined as a rookie in camp by Bruce Hill and tight end Ron Hall. And then there was a quiet third round pick from Nichols State, who became the best of them all. Mark Carrier scored in his very first NFL game, the season opening blowout of the Falcons, but then took a back seat for several weeks until Testaverde's first start in New Orleans. Eight catches for 212 yards later, the first 200-yard game in franchise history, and Mark Carrier was on the map. And that remains still one of only four 200-yard games in Buccaneer history. He formed a dynamic combination with Bruce Hill in 1988, in which the latter had his 1,000-yard season, but 1989 was Mark Carrier's coming-out party. 86 receptions for 1,422 yards, a yardage total it would take almost three decades to be broken. He made the Pro Bowl, albeit as an alternate, in a true miscarriage of justice against the woefully undercovered Bucks at the time. Now, Mark's numbers from then on never really lived up to that peak, and after six seasons with the Bucks, he moved on to play for Cleveland and Carolina and now works in the Buffalo Bills front office. His 5,018-yard total was the best in franchise history when he left, although it has been surpassed since. Probably the most underrated Buccaneer offensive player maybe ever. You might argue James Wilder, but you go back and look at the seasons that Mark Curry was having, particularly on bad teams, and I know there's an argument that can be made that, hey, somebody's got to have the catches, somebody's got to have the stats, even on a bad team. But Carrier repeatedly would come up again. Here we go back to big plays on third down touchdown scored leaping catches I mean a lot of times there were some rockets being thrown by Vinny Testaverde that were errant that were behind him that were too high seemingly and he would make the play uh, and a couple of fun Mark Carrier stories when my family moved to the Tampa Bay area my mother began to work at a part-time job in customer service for a computer company with Mark Carrier's wife and my mother came home after a few days and said well, I'm working with so-and-so and her husband's one of the Buccaneers. One of the Buccaneers? What do you mean? One of, one of 53? Who, which one? It turns out it was Mark Carrier's wife. So I had a little connection uh, to Mark Carrier, uh, who, again, would have 1,000-yard seasons on bad teams, uh, make some big plays. I still remember uh, the year that the bad Buccaneers of Ray Perkins swept the Chicago Bears you can look this up on buckpower.com. Mark Carrier, two tremendous games in that 89 season, including the game-winning touchdown, essentially, or at least the go-ahead touchdown from Vinny on a catch-and-run at Soldier Field. Donald Igwe Buike, as I recall, won the game with a field goal late, but Carrier had a huge play in that game. Very worthy, very worthy on your selection of second best. That long touchdown pass, he beat a friend of mine, Sean Gale, who works on British TV. And Sean has said to me, can you please take that clip off? I don't want to see it anymore. But if you're a 
Buccaneer fan, you love that. And remember, earlier in that year, right, the entire offense was named NFC Offensive Player of the Week for the 42-point performance against who? The Chicago Bears. And Mark Carrier had a 100-yard game and at least a touchdown, I think, in that game. He's definitely worthy. A game we featured on the BuckPal.com podcast last year. Before we finish the countdown, some honourable mentions. Keenan McArdle, who had two great seasons, including two touchdowns in the Super Bowl, and in 2003 scored eight times, although all of them were in games the Bucks lost. Antonio Bryant, who had a 200-yard game against Carolina and scored the Bucks' first international touchdown in London in 2009. Bruce Hill, who had a 1,000-yard season in 1988, but his career was affected by injuries. Joe Juravicious had some big plays, but his numbers really weren't enough to consider a place in our top ten. Other people not considered, Antonio Brown, who probably threw his shirt down in protest, Alvin Harper, who would have dropped his shirt in the first place, and Bert Emanuel, who would have had it overturned on replay. And the crowd going deep for Evans, he's done it, and he scores! Winston Spurs now, pass up to Sam the other way, Brady going deep down the right sideline for Evans, he makes the catch, he's in for the score. So we come to the best wide receiver in franchise history, and frankly this was a no-brainer. Mike Evans was the seventh overall pick in the 2014 draft, and in his eight Buccaneer seasons, he's exceeded a thousand yards every single time. Now a couple of them have been by the skin of his teeth, but the streak continues and it is an NFL record. There have been 25 1,000-yard seasons by the Bucks in 46 campaigns, and Mike Evans has nearly a third of them on his own. His 1,524-yard mark in 2018 is the best in franchise history. His 606 receptions leads the category, as does his 9,301 yards in total. Oh, and he's got 75 touchdowns as well, just to lead that one as well. So just save a place in the Ring of Honour right now, irrespective of what he does in the rest of his Buccaneer career. Off the field, Mike has also been three times nominated as the Bucks' Walter Payton nominee for the Man of the Year, and he's got four Pro Bowls for his resume too. He is the best wide receiver in Buccaneer history, without a doubt. Well, where do you begin with this guy who right now looks like he's going to hold every Buccaneer receiving record? And I don't think, give me your input, I don't think it's an overestimation to say Mike Evans is headed for the Hall of Fame. If he has a couple of more seasons, uh, granted, he may not stack up with all-time NFL records, but if you're holding every Buccaneer record, you've won a Super Bowl, you're definitely one of the top 10, if not the top five receivers of your era. Fair, right, Paul? I think... I think that's a worthy choice for number one overall. You can't go wrong taking Mike Evans, Scoop. TJ, it's been great having you on this one. When we do the 10 best punters in Buckingham history, I might get someone else. That might be a bit harder. But for the 10 best receivers, thank you. Can you honestly say there have been 10 great Buccaneer punters? I mean, this team has punted a lot. You're right, in 40-plus years of the franchise. But I don't know if you get to 10. What a blast to be with you and talk receivers. Great debates. Back and forth. Like Joe Juravicious is not in your top 10. Juravicious is not in your top. Look, Chris Godwin is not in your top five. 
I love these debates going back and forth, but the names from Mark Carrier to Keyshawn Johnson to Mike Evans to Kevin House, even you, you even squeezed in a Gerald Carter, a Morris Owens. Well done, Paul. And there you have the first Buck Power Top 10. We'd love to hear your opinions on the countdown via social media, and I will be putting together a YouTube video compilation of the best touchdowns from each of these players. Please rate and review this show wherever you get your podcast from, and look out for more in this series as we continue the countdown to the 2022 Tampa Bay Buccaneers season. Oh, my God.